0: Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, let's dig in his word together. How about that? Sound good? All right, let's turn over to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, and we are looking at verses 27 to 40 this morning. This isn't quite the easiest text. To preach out of, but it's going to be fun nonetheless. As you're turning to Luke chapter 20, I wanted to give a little bit of a background on some of the players in this text so we have a better idea some of the reasons why they're asking Jesus these questions. Okay, so the first thing we're introduced in this passage too is this idea of the, of a lady who's and we'll read this in a, just a couple of minutes, who marries a guy who dies, who marries his brother who dies, and on and on and on. This the idea. It's an Old Testament um, principle of what's called leveret marriage. Okay. And so in order for the Israelites to continue on with the family name and to protect the property rights and really to care for uh, a woman who, whose husband has died and they have no children, God had provided for them a way in which they could perpetuate the family name and provide for the widow in her old age with having children. And it's through the Leverett marriage. It's out of Deuteronomy 25. And so in this passage we read about God providing for the widow in such a way that if if her husband were to die without having kids, she was to go to the brother who would then provide children for her in order to keep the family name alive. So that's the first thing is this Leverett marriage idea of Deuteronomy twenty five. Although it probably was not in operation at this time, it's still a principle that the Sadducees are trying to, to dig up. So that's why they're asking this question. Secondly, we're introduced to some guys named the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees were different from the Pharisees, okay, in a couple of significant ways. Okay. They were they were different in their belief systems first and foremost okay? The Sadducees were few but wealthy, and they had a lot of power in the local government. And so for them, um, they, they corroborated with Rome in many different ways because they wanted to hold on to their power and their wealth. And so Rome, a pagan country, comes and takes over Israel. Well, the Sadducees are like, hey, we're going to kind of work alongside these guys because we don't want to lose the stuff that we do have. Well, the Pharisees were many, but they didn't have all kinds of money or really necessarily the the kind of political clout that the Sadducees had. Um, Secondly, the Sadducees really only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, which are called the Torah, or the books of Moses. And so they really rejected the prophets and all the other books, and they held very tightly to the first five books of the Bible, called the Torah. Well, the Pharisees held on to the entire Old Testament, as we know it, and a ton of other rules and regulations they called the oral tradition. So they had, not only they understood the the laws of God, but then they added and piled on a bunch of other rules and regulations. That's what the Pharisees did, and they held on to those as binding and as God's word as well. But more significantly, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead or in angels, whereas the Pharisees believe very much and affirm the resurrection of the dead and the existence of angels. And so that was the major difference of the two. They both, they didn't really like each other, but neither of them liked Jesus. So they were in some ways kind of combined in their hatred for Jesus Christ, but they didn't really get along either. And so that was kind of the big differences that we see between the two. All right. We got all that straightened away. Let's look at Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. As we do that, I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, we, we pray this morning, God, that you would just give us a grace to understand your word. Lord, thank you that you are speaking today through your word. God, that your word is not bound, but Lord, it is unleashed. And Lord, you bring life and power to your word. And God, we pray today that you would give us hungry hearts for your word. Give us open ears and open eyes. And God, let us receive your word with faith and respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's the leveret marriage part. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. And in the resurrection, therefore, Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and, to, and are sons of God. Being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. And so in this first discussion where the the Sadducees are coming to Jesus Christ, we see they're not coming because they really want to know something. They're really coming to Jesus Christ to try to trip him up in his words, try to trap him, try to shut him down and keep him quiet. Remember, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem, the capital city. And Jesus went in the capital city to the temple to teach. And he kicks everybody out and he begins to teach what he, is, he begins to teach what he understands and knows to be the truth about God. And so there's many people who do not like what Jesus has to say. Now you have to remember, these guys are coming to Jesus to try to trap him and shut him down. And Jesus goes toe-to-toe with these guys time in and time again, and he completely continues to shut them down. All right, So Jesus is really coming to a place, this would be like if someone went to... Um, the science department of MIT, and begin to debate with the, the scientists there and begin to shut them down. Jesus is, is wrestling with some of the, the smartest and the brightest and most sophisticated people in the country. And he begins to shut them down, going to Harvard, talking about um, science or whatever else. He, he's going to these top places and talking. It's like going to Purdue Cal and talking about business, right? These top places in the, in the country. Shutting everybody down. And so as they come to Jesus Christ, the Sadducees know that there's not a whole lot written about the resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. And so they're arguing from the first five books of the Bible, thinking, hey, look, there's not much written here. We only believe in the first five books of the Bible. So let's see what Jesus has to say about this. And no one at this point has really been able to shut them down because there isn't a whole lot written, and they don't believe anything else. So what do you do? Well, at this point, I want to make two observations and two points about this passage. Okay, so the observations are just something not the main point or thrust of the passage, but yet we see come up, and I want to just mention them because I think it's important. The two observations, the first one is this. Jesus spoke in a language that people could understand. In Luke 19, verse 48, we read this, that the people were hanging on his every word, Jesus spoke in such a way that people were able to understand what he was saying. Not only the people who are who are the, the smartest and the brightest in the country, but just the common poor people as well could understand and get a hold of what Jesus was saying. He's communicating in such a way that people are able to to grasp what he is saying. He's communicating in such a way that he knows where people are at, and he's speaking to them in their language. I love this about Jesus Christ. And with the, with the Sadducees, he knows that what they really believed and held on to was the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. So as he begins to reason with the Sadducees, he finds a place of common ground. He doesn't try to argue with different things about that they don't believe, and they'd say, oh, well, you're just arguing from this place. We don't believe that, so we can just dismiss you. He brings it to them in such a way that they understand what he is saying. And by the way, this is the grace of God to the Sadducees. As much as we think of these guys trying to shut Jesus down, Jesus yet continues to minister the truth and the life of Almighty God to people by proclaiming to them the truth about who God is. This is Jesus' grace poured out and lavished upon the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and all the religious leaders who are trying to shut him down. He doesn't just quickly just just kick him out and forget about him. He's dialoguing with them. He's talking to them. He's reasoning with them. I think for me, this is a good reminder for us. That we, as we begin to talk to people about Jesus Christ, that we would speak in a language that people would understand. Does, does someone know good if we come up to him and say, Brother, you need to be covered in the blood of the Lamb for the forgiveness of your transgressions. Nobody would understand that. Nobody would get that. We're speaking in a language that they think you're some kind of cultish person. trying to. What kind of initiation rites are you talking about? Here's blood of lambs and you want to cover me in this? And what, I don't get that. Jesus is speaking in such a way that they understood what he was saying. This is what I mean by this. There was a, there was a girl after church some, some time ago who um, a family in the church brought her with and she came up for prayer afterwards for some things. And, and I had the privilege of praying with her. Before I prayed with her, I just asked her a couple of things because she was troubled about some things that were going on in her house. And I said, do you know Jesus? And I figured, well, she's in church. She came here for help. Do you know Jesus? I want to make sure you know what I'm... She's like, I don't know Jesus. I'm like, okay, let me just... Would you mind if I just took 30 seconds and just shared the good news of Jesus Christ with you? And so she said, sure. So I, I began to describe to her the gospel... Just going through our need for Jesus and just the way that he has, he has came to earth and died on the cross for our sins and that we can have forgiveness and, and restoration with Almighty God through Jesus Christ. And, and I said at the very end of that, as I, as I was talking her through this, assuming that she had come to church and understood that something about God, I looked at her and I said, do you understand what I'm talking about? She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't, I just, I don't get it. I don't, the cross and dying and and all this kind of reconciliation, all this kind of stuff, I just don't get it. And it really made me think that I can so easily assume that because someone is here in church or maybe, you know, at praise or someone that reads the Bible or whatever it may be, that one, that they're a Christian and two, they understand the kind of Christianese language that we use Sometimes. And it's a real challenge for me and for all of us, I believe, to say I have got to know and love the people in such a way that I would be able to speak in a language that they would understand. As we bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the people around us, it does them very little good if we're speaking a language that they don't understand. We need to be at a place where we say, God, I pray for your wisdom and your grace to speak in a language that people would understand. Just this week I was working out at the gym and I'm working out with this guy and it just so happened that we were at the gym at a time that no one else was there. It's a small gym and and so we were taught and I asked the, just talking to the guy about a couple things and I was able to ask him, I said, Look, how do you go to church at all? I mean what's what's that like for you? And he's like, Well, I go every once in a while and um, and I, I just my wife wants me to participate and Join a small group and serve and all this kind of other stuff, but I'd rather just show up on a Sunday morning, kind of do my two hours, and then go home and forget about the rest of the week. And before we had, before this conversation happened, I just, I was like, Lord, give me an opportunity to tell this guy about Jesus. You know, just, I said, you know, God has redeemed you for so much more than that. God has redeemed you for a purpose. And He hasn't redeemed you just to kind of, So you can enjoy a two-hour message on a Sunday morning, but he's redeemed you for all of your life. That wherever you are at, God can use you. Just like if someone came to the gym and sat there for two hours and one one day a week and said, hey, this is really great, I like this gym, I want to work out here for two hours once a week. You'd say, hey, look, you're missing out on the benefit and and what what really is intended for you to exercise and, and have energy for your kids and all that kind of stuff. And I felt like at that moment, God had given me something. This is so far beyond me, because I don't, I don't think that quickly or that, you know, in, that, that, in that manner. But I felt like God gave me something that I could speak his language. And he's like, yeah. And he understood it. He got it. He's like, yeah, I can see that. Like, God is bigger than, he's redeemed me for more than just what I've been living for. And, and so I just want to encourage us and remind us, like, hey, as we approach people, With the good news of Jesus Christ, let us be those who come and speak in a language that people can understand and get a hold of as we present the truths of God's word. And that really takes a dependence upon God first and foremost, because that's that is a supernatural work of God that is beyond us. But it also takes us knowing and loving people in such a way that we understand where they're at. So I just want to encourage us with that. Jesus spoke in a language that people could understand. But secondly, the second observation is this. The resurrection is central to our understanding of the gospel. Our understanding of the gospel is such that Jesus' atoning death for our sins is not the end of it, but his atoning death for our sins and his resurrection. The good news of the gospel is that we serve Jesus Christ, who's not in a tomb somewhere sitting in the earth. That he has died, but he also rose again. This is the heart of the gospel, that we serve the living God. And so for us, this idea of, of there not being a resurrection like the Sadducees say, it strikes at the very heart of the gospel. And so that's why Jesus begins to, to really un, unravel this stuff, because he understands this is a big deal. If If what he said in Luke chapter 9 about he's going to be betrayed and murdered and then be raised again in three days, if that was just rubbish, then Jesus is a liar. And he's a deceiver. So he understood as he's beginning to unpack this with the Sadducees, that the resurrection is very part and parcel with the gospel. Because he is the living God. He is the one who has redeemed us and saved us from our sins and who has risen and defeated sin and death and Satan and now is raised and sits at the right hand of the Father. The good news is the cross plus the empty tomb. That is the good news for us. And so if the Sadducees missed the resurrection, they miss the gospel. If we miss the resurrection, we miss the gospel. This is the good news for us. Okay? Those are my two observations. Let's get to the two points where I think is some of the main thrust of this text. So Jesus uses the resurrection in this passage to define two things. He uses the resurrection to define in verse 36 our relationship to God as sons of God. And then he uses the resurrection to define in verse 38 in the context, the very nature of God God himself in the burning bush. And so let's first look at our relationship to God. The resurrection is part and parcel of our relationship to God Almighty. A guy by the name of G.B. Card writes this, All life, here and hereafter, consists in friendship with God. Death may put an end to physical existence, but not a relationship that is by nature eternal. Men may lose their friends by death, but not God. We have a relationship with Almighty God that is such that as we serve and worship and are filled with His Spirit, that it is an eternal relationship. It's not a temporal relationship. It is an eternal relationship. So we have hope. This is really the, the contours of our relationship with God. Just like when I stood up and, and Michelle and I were married, there were certain contours to our relationship that were defined on that day, the day of our marriage. Right? I was, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to love you in sickness and health and rich or poor to death do us part. That's the contours of our relationship. That defines our relationship to some degree. And He says in the same way, the contours of our relationship to Almighty God is one that is eternal. Is one that death cannot separate us from God. That even when we quit breathing and cease cease life on this earth, that we will go to be with Him in paradise forever. That is the contours of of our relationship with Almighty God. In Ephesians 2, we read this, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but we've been made alive by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That is our hope, that we serve the living God in such a way that we are brought from death into life. And that our relationship by God defines the fact that we are sons of God. We are sons of the resurrection, it says. We are sons of God. Not even death can separate us from God's love. But the second thing is this. The resurrection also, in some way, he uses it in context to define the the nature of God. He says he is the living God. And he's making the point that he's talking about the burning bush passage. And they didn't have chapters and verses at this time in the Bible, so he refers to the burning bush passage, which is in Exodus 3. And in Exodus 3, Moses, who's um, been in the wilderness for 40 years, and the, the Israelites have been in Egypt for about 400 years, God appears to Moses out of a burning bush. And he appears to Moses in this burning bush, and as Moses approaches this burning bush, a voice comes out, it's a voice of Almighty God. And he says, take your shoes off. Right. It's the first thing he says, take your shoes off. He's establishing protocol, right, We don't approach God on our own terms. We don't just kind of roll up to God and say, hey, what's up, God? What's going on? God says, no, there's a way that is right that you approach me, and I determine what that is. We don't approach God in our own ways. We approach God the way that he just prescribes for us to approach him. So he says, take off your shoes. God says, I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard the cries of my people. In slavery, in slavery, and brutal brutality, and just the way that they have been driven to the ground by the Egyptians, and I'm going to set them free. I am the living God who is able to redeem, and to save, and to set free. And I want you to go back as my prophet, as my spokesperson, and tell Pharaoh, and tell all the people, that I am the living God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the covenant. I'm not the God, I'm not... I wasn't just their God at one point. I am their God now. I am the God of the living. I am the living God. God is able to save and deliver his people because he is the living God. Then he says this, "For all," Jesus says this, for all live to him. For all live to him. There is life not found anywhere else. Our life is found in Jesus Christ alone. There is not life found anywhere else in this this world. Not any other religion, not any other practice, not any other good works. Life is found in him alone. That's where life is found. I want to close with this. It's the gospel. Verse 35. We read this. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Verse 35, he says, those who are considered worthy, or in the, in the, the proper language here, in the, in, the, in the Greek language, it's really counted or made worthy. It's not just considered worthy, but it's made worthy. It's something that happens to us. Not something that we attain to ourselves, but it's something that actually happens to us, that we're somehow made worthy. It's not something that we do, but something that's done to us by Almighty God. And this is our hope in Jesus Christ. The resurrection, the relationship, the life that we have isn't something that we somehow earn or attain to ourselves. It is a gift from Almighty God. It is a gift of grace from Almighty God. He says, I will give life and fullness of life to those who come to me in faith that we, as we trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are completely changed and made new again. That we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That as Almighty God looks down upon us and who we are, He sees Jesus Christ. That no longer I live, but Jesus Christ who lives in me. This is the hope that we have. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of relationship, the hope of life comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from knowing Him and fellowshipping with Him and seeing Him for who He is. This is what Jesus Christ is talking about in this we read about that in Ephesians 2 our hope is in life and relationship now and on into eternity and I want to encourage us today as we kind of wrap this up this morning that our hope is found in Jesus Christ that if our hope is placed in anywhere anything or any person or anywhere else other than Jesus Christ in his work for us then our hope is misplaced that we need to fully come to Jesus Christ no matter where we're at and place our faith and our hope in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the life that you extend to us and how you have made a way for us to know you, love you, and have relationship with you even beyond this life and into the next. Jesus, thank you that you have made a way for us. And Lord, I pray that whatever area in our lives we need to trust you with and surrender to you, God, that we would approach that with faith, believing Jesus, that you can resurrect, you can bring to life, you can change us. So we pray all these things in your name. Amen.